The scripture reading this morning is a long one, so settle back. (laughs) I'm reading from Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the other will serve, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared before glory, beforehand for glory. And why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, I'm Mike Scudder, one of your elders here, and this is my first time preaching to you all. We have a God-centered salvation. God has given to us who believe and offered to those who do not yet believe a very great salvation. This salvation is from God's wrath into God's incredible mercy. As Paul has proven earlier in this letter, we have all sinned 
God may righteously inflict wrath on, upon all of us. He has begun to do so by giving us over to our own chosen corruption. And there is a day of wrath coming when God's righteous judgment will be fully revealed. God must do so. Justice is part of the unchangeable character of God. But thanks be to God, his mercy triumphs over his justice. And he has chosen to accept our punishment upon himself on the cross of Jesus, where heaven and earth meet. In verse 13, we learn that God chose to bless Jacob rather than Esau, though they were both sons of his beloved Isaac and Rebekah. And though they were not yet born and had not yet done anything, either good or bad, God chose to have mercy on Jacob without concern for whether Jacob had or would earn mercy. In fact, by its very nature, mercy cannot be earned. This seems unjust to us. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? Before they had even done anything? Is this injustice on God's part? we look at things from our perspective, from a man-centered point of view. Paul anticipates this objection and turns us to look at this from a God-centered point of view. Paul asks a lot of us, his readers. I am awed by Paul, the reasoner and communicator. I'm a programmer by trade. It's part of my job to debug code and find flaws in language presented to computers. When I read arguments by fellow humans, even when I read my own words, I see flaws and bugs. They stand out to me. But when I read scripture, notably when I read Paul's arguments, I do not find flaws. I find wonderfully reasoned arguments. This is part of what has convinced me that God's word is God's. But as I said, Paul asks a lot of his readers. He buries whole trains of arguments in the grounds of his surface arguments and expects us to dig with him and work with him to get at his reasoning. In verse 14, he does this. When he asks, is there injustice on God's part? He has silently also asked and answered the question, what would it mean for there to be injustice in God? And he transitions from the human-centered perspective of his objector to the God-centered perspective 
of his answer. The answer is, for God to be unrighteous would be for God to not demonstrate his own perfection, for God to be false to his own nature. This may be a shocking standard of righteousness to us, but it makes sense. God is love. God is light. God has all beauty. He perfectly delights himself in himself in the Trinity. He is the bountiful artist who has made all this universe's stunning works, including even us among his intelligent creatures. He would be lying if he told us there was anyone more lovely than himself, and he will never lie. Paul expects us to figure this out on the basis of the testimony of the scripture without spelling it out in this particular passage. So Paul then asks, to further his argument, what is God's nature that he must be true to? And he recalls the answer God gave to Moses. Moses was God's lawgiver, the first leader of the nation of Israel, the one who parted the Red Sea and led them through it, after which God drowned Pharaoh in his chariots. Moses and God had all sorts of grief from the Israelites he led through the wilderness. Now Moses asked God to go with the people of Israel, even though they continued stiff-necked and in danger of being consumed by God's wrath. Moses asked God to show Moses God's glory, not only because he wanted a mystical experience with God, but because he wanted assurance that God would not destroy the Israelites because of future expected rebellions. And in Exodus 33:19, God responded, I will proclaim before you my name, I am, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I show mercy. God attaches the phrase, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy to his very name. This is like, I am that I am, when God named himself to Moses from the burning bush. God affirms that he is merciful and that he is free to choose who he will be merciful to. This freedom is part of who God is. This reassures Moses, and he asks again for God to go in the midst of the people of Israel, a stiff-necked people, to pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for his inheritance, which God does. So we should conclude with Paul that God is just, that God is true to himself when he chooses whomever he pleases to be saved. And we should be very grateful that he has offered and chosen to save us. Paul continues 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Note that this statement refutes those who want to fix God's injustice in their human-centered sense of fixing. I've tried to do this in the past. By having God look into the future of our wills and exertions to choose to save us based on what we will do and be in the future. This Paul also excludes, both on the basis of his explicit words and on the overall thrust of his argument. Paul then uses Pharaoh as an example, showing that God freely and sovereignly chooses not only to have mercy on some, but also to harden some. Remember what Paul has shown earlier in this letter, that all have sinned and that we are all justly under the wrath of God. God is not tempting us nor forcing us to sin, but God, when he hardens, is choosing not to keep restraining our hell-bent ways. But even so, this rankles us and causes us to find fault with God. We complain, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why does God blame us when he's in charge? Now, Paul did not rebuke us for asking if there was injustice on God's part. He treats that as a legitimate question, although readily refuted. But here he rebukes us for arrogance, for not acting humbly. Paul uses the metaphor of the potter and the clay, echoing back to the prophet Jeremiah. God is the potter, the craftsman, the artist, and we are the clay. The potter gets to choose the destiny of the clay. We ought to humbly praise God for all he has made, not set ourselves up as God's judge. Next, we have a what if. This is very unusual in the scripture a statement about God that is framed as an idea for us to consider rather than as an explicit teaching. What is going on here? I too submit an idea to you about why this turn of phrase. Christianity does not ask us to abandon our reason. Rather, God commands us to love him with all our minds. We are expected to use our finite, limited, even polluted minds to the very best of our ability. We are not to believe falsehoods or reject reason, but to test everything and hold on to the good. But even so, we are not to lean on our understanding for it is limited. Some of the truths about God, such as the Trinity and his plan of salvation, go beyond what we can imagine. We don't have the words or the mental powers to more than scratch the surface of these concepts.
It's a child when I teach her that God is all-powerful. Well, ask me, so can God create a rock so big that it can't move it? I might respond with, what if God can, but he won't? Try that. See if it works. See if it leaves God all-powerful. I'm not claiming this is a full and complete response to her question. There's a lot more I could say about God being spirit, not flesh. About how her question itself embodies questionable assumptions and definitions. But I can hope to make her think. I can give her a workable answer without claiming to have exhausted the subject. I submit that this might be what Paul is doing here when he says, what if God? He does it much better and closer to the truth than I did in the example I just gave. I think he is not claiming that this is the final word on God's electing and hardening on the vessels of wrath and mercy. But he is offering us a way of thinking that is without contradiction, that fits with the rest of Scripture, that is at or near the limit of what our minds can handle. It is easy to fall into the trap of being glib and smug when it comes to God's ways, to present his plan of salvations in easy steps as if that was all there was to say about the subject. I myself love Paul's very short summary of the gospel in Colossians, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But I love it in part because the words Christ and glory imply so much more and can be unpacked for so much. So be careful not to present to people too small and limited a plan of salvation. We are not simply saved from hell and to heaven as a personal fate by saying and believing the right words. We are also saved from a futile way of life in the here and now, and we are saved into a kingdom, into an obedient and abundant life, into a community of God's people, both here and now and into eternity. So let us try to unpack this what-if that Paul gave us, gives us, even though it lies at the limit of our understanding. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What if God has created two categories of people out of the same stuff, clay, as it were? Both groups are sinners. Both groups could be severely punished with flawless justice. Both are prone to rebellion and polluted in their thinking. Either group would flash into ash in the presence of our holy God. But God has very different purposes 
for these two groups. He has one ultimate purpose concerning all of us together. What if that purpose is to demonstrate to us who believe how great and wonderful is his mercy? This mercy involves inflicting on himself the due punishment for all of our sins. This punishment is infinite because some of our offenses are cruel and depraved acts against the infinitely good God. In order to make known to us this mercy, it is necessary for us to be confronted with the depth and horror of our offenses. This God does by inflicting the just punishment for these same sorts of offenses on people who are no more or less deserving of God's wrath than we are. There is no boasting here. Our sins deserve God's wrath. Humans are suitable containers to be filled and overflowed with God's wrath. We are twisted and broken images of God. In great patience and with great pain to himself, he endures our crimes against himself and his images, his people. In stunning power, he permits the evils of this world and uses the horror of the hell he has prepared for the devil and his angels to punish the evils of us humans. This is what the prophet Isaiah called God's strange work, not a work he delights in, but a work that he is willing to do for his other purposes. This knowledge of our just deserts is part of what prepares us vessels of mercy for God's glorious heavenly kingdom, along with the transforming work of his word and our final glorification to come once he returns. We are to be filled to the brim and overflowing with God's mercy. We shall always be thankful for our escape, even when we are enamored of the greater benefits of the new heaven and the new earth, even when we are part of the city of God and collectively the bride of Christ. To those who do not yet believe, I offer to you hope. The very fact that you are listening to these words is evidence that God is pursuing you and that you have a very good hope of being a vessel of mercy. Continue to seek God and see if his ways are not beautiful. Remember also that this is a what if. If some things still seem wrong, that may be because I have explained them poorly. Paul has given us a glimpse into God's ways, into what Moses identified as the secret things. A glimpse that should have us asking, why me? Not in a complaining way, but in an overwhelmingly grateful way. Why has God shown such incredible favor and mercy to us to offer us his salvation? Let us remember with Moses that this glimpse, 
these secret things belong to God. But the things revealed, the simple offer of salvation to repent and believe and be saved, these things belong to us. Trust God, do his revealed will, and be saved. Now, I direct us to the last two verses of the chapter and to the person of Jesus. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They had stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God has come in person to us. In his life, in his sacrificial death on the cross, he has presented to us salvation by faith. If you insist that God must save you because of the good works that you do, if this is the only justice that you will accept, then you stumble over Jesus, the stumbling stone. Jesus is the rock that God will not remove. But if instead of stumbling over him, you believe in Jesus and trust his work on your behalf, then you will not be put to shame. Instead, you have the gift of salvation. Like David in Psalm 131, having taken a glimpse in Psalm 139 of the wonders of predestination, now calm and quiet your soul. Do not occupy yourself overmuch with matters too great and marvelous for us. Like a weaned child with its mother, trust God with all your heart do not lean on your own understanding. This week, remind yourself of what has God, God has done for us and be thankful. Ask yourself, why me? And be grateful that it is God's very nature. Have mercy upon us.